once in AD 6, but also sometime earlier. And there is strong warrant for this interpretation, since, <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. One of them is, there is an ancient Roman fragment that was unearthed in Tivoli, which is near Rome, and it described the career of a man remarkably similar to Quirinius. Now, unfortunately, on this fragment, the name, the, the name of this figure does not survive. We know what the person did, but we don't know who it was, at least according to the fragment. But the fragment does mention that this man governed Syria twice. A double governorship would also explain why Luke clarifies for his audience that Luke refers to the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, which suggests there was at least one other census, one other later census, that also took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Therefore, from what we learn in Matthew and from these, these other items, we can conclude that Quirinius's first governorship must have occurred while Herod was also reigning in Judea. So there actually is a solution to this issue. So when in Herod's reign was Jesus born? Well, if Herod indeed died in 4 BC, then the latest that Jesus could be born, since he's about two, when Herod searches for him and the family flees to Egypt, the latest Jesus could be born would be 6 BC. Or the, the further, furthest, uh, yeah, so 6 BC is one, one set of the reign. However, if, Jesus, or if Herod died slightly later, if he died in 3 BC or 1 BC, then Jesus could have been born a little bit later. Could have been born in 4 BC, or even, as some have suggested, 3 BC. So this is why many, I think even most conservative evangelical scholars, place Jesus' birth between 6 and 4 BC. You might take slightly different views on the date of Herod's death and how much time went by between the flight to Egypt and return to Israel, but... The determining factors are, are the main determining factors are the things that I presented to you here. The reigning of these different men and Herod's death. And, and also the detail that Jesus was about two years old when these events with the wise men take place. Of course, there are other factors in this issue of the timing. There are some minor details that I've skipped over, but hopefully you can see, to a greater degree now, the rationale for placing Jesus' birth between 6 and 4 BC. Questions about the timing of Jesus' birth? Yeah. Okay, those are good questions. I'll repeat them real quick. There are other issues that come up in, in, in dating Jesus' birth and just dealing with the text. Why does Luke say that the census took place throughout the whole world when there's, there's no historical record saying that there was a Roman Empire-wide census? And why were they required to go back to their place of birth whenever they registered for the census? That doesn't seem to be something that the Romans required or would require. Don't know the exact answer to those questions, but I, I, I have um, some ideas that come to mind. One is that even though there was no empire-wide census, one singular census, there was a system of censees, and perhaps Luke is just describing that. That Augustus says, "I want census. I want a census of the whole Roman world," and they say, "Well, we can't do that all at once." Well, he's like, "Well, get to it. Get the different things working. Get the census of this region. Get the census of that region." We know that Augustus certainly initiated a cycle of censuses. I don't know if it's censuses or censuses. I have to look that up. But um, there were certainly multiple censuses that took place during Augustus' reign and in different regions. So that's uh, one way to respond to the first question. As regards to why do they have to go back to their own city, I'm not really sure. That may just be something unique to the Jewish people since they, they were very much... Um, very much aware of their tribal lineage. And so um, to verify with the Jews that you came from this certain tribe, it was necessary to go back to a city of that tribe. So maybe the, the Jews have attached an extra element to this census uh, that required one to go back to a city of one's tribe. Because remember, knowing what tribe you're in and knowing your genealogy was very important to the Jews. So that may be a reason. I'm not sure if there is a particular reason why the Romans would have required that. I'd have to find out more. Other questions? Okay. So we've dealt with our first issue, the timing and the chronology. Now let's move to our passage. Let's examine the visit of these wise men, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 18. 
There's a little bit more in this chapter, but we're just going to stop at verse 18. So Matthew 2, verses 1 to 18. Follow along as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I may too, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted, because they were no more. Let's begin our study of this passage, following our inductive Bible study method, with simple observations. Notice that we have the appearance here of magi, or wise men, in Jerusalem. Now this term, magi or wise men, refers to a high caste of mystics, who often served as special advisors and administrators to rulers and kings. You may even notice that magi sounds like the beginning of the word magic. Those two were definitely connected. Where else have we seen wise men in the Bible? Yeah, Steve. Daniel. Daniel is one place. And a little earlier in the Bible. Egypt, right, with the Exodus. We have the magicians, or we have the wise men of Pharaoh who are trying to also do miracles. But Daniel is the one that, or I'm sorry, the book of Daniel is one where we, we see them even more. Now, pagan wise men, whether they were religious or priests of a, a pagan religion or just people who studied various occult things, they often dealt with astrology. That is the study of how the stars affect world events. This is not astronomy, that's different. Astrology, how do the stars affect world events? And they, they dealt with the occult. But which Jews in the Old Testament also were wise men? Yeah, Steve. Would it be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, Daniel and his friends. Remember back in Daniel when uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want all the wise men killed because they can't interpret my dream. Who else is going to be killed with that? with that group. Daniel and his three friends, they were in the group of counselors and uh, religious advisors. But God gave Daniel a vision so that he and his friends were not killed. So they were considered to be wise men. Now notice that these wise men come from the east. East is not a very specific term. Though directly east from Palestine was the land of Persia. 
then dominated by the Parthian Empire. Now, when you think Parthian, basically just think Persian. Parthians were a group within the Persian Empire that dominated the Persian Empire at that time. But know that the Parthians were frequently enemies of Rome. They were the enemy to the east. Now, notice for what these wise men are looking. The one born king of the Jews. And how do they know he was born? They saw his star. And where did they see the star? In the east. Some other translations say, we saw it rising, but that would mean in the east. That's where things usually rise from. Now notice what these wise men intend to do once they find the king of the Jews. They intend to worship him or bow down in reverence to him. The term can mean both of those things. Now how many wise men does the text say arrived in Jerusalem? Very good. You know my trick question was coming. It doesn't say. The tradition is that only three wise men arrived. This number comes from the number of different gifts that appear later in the narrative. But nothing in the passage limits the wise men to just three. It could have been more. But even if there were only three wise men, the length of the journey and the importance of these persons, these were high-class individuals, probably means that they came with a large entourage, camels filled with provisions and valuables, as well as many servants to ride the camels and to attend to the provisions and to serve the wise men serve these dignitaries. And they're probably also soldiers, soldiers to guard the caravan. So the arrival of these wise men, these foreign dignitaries, with their servants and the guards in the middle of Jerusalem would have been a very noticeable and unexpected sight. By the way, we sometimes sing the song We Three Kings around Christmas time. But you ever wondered why the song calls them kings? Nothing here in the text mentions them being kings. And wise men, while important, were not royalty. This king tradition apparently comes from early and medieval Christian interpreters who connected the arrival of these wise men with Old Testament prophecies regarding how Gentile kings would one day bow down before the Messiah. Places like Psalm 72.11 and Isaiah 49.7. So these wise men are from the foreign nations, and they're bowing down to Jesus. So this must be what the Old Testament was talking about. These men must be kings. Well, that's definitely an interpretive stretch. Kings will one day bow down to Jesus, but we're not talking about kings here. These are just wise men. Important, but not kings. The idea of visiting kings, though, seems to also be the origin of another tradition regarding the names of these wise men. You've probably heard, or you may have heard of their names, Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. This also comes from early and medieval Christians searching in history for what kings these three could have been. You know, what, what kings were there in the area at that time, and what, what their names could have been. And that's where we have this tradition. Though, interestingly, that's only the Western tradition. Other, other places in the world, they have different names than Magi. So, there you go. But, of course, there's, there's no biblical warrant for those names. We don't know who they were. Now, despite not being kings, the visit of these important magi with their servants and their soldiers to Jerusalem to worship the new king of the Jews caused an understandable reaction. Herod became troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. By the way, from the Roman perspective, who was supposed to be king of the Jews? Herod. Yeah, it says King Herod. Isn't he ruling over the Jews? Isn't he ruling in the Jewish land? Isn't he the king of the Jews? Herod's supposed to be the king. Who's Herod? Ah, let's get some background. During the intertestamental period, that is, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, this intervening period, the kingdom of Judea had grown from a small enclave centered around Jerusalem to a great dominion. That included nearly all the originally allotted land of Israel and even some extra territory. They had conquered land to the south of Israel. Under, this was under the Hasmonean dynasty. That's just a name for the, the group of Jewish rulers that came about from the Maccabean revolt. Under the Hasmonean dynasty, the Jews conquered Idumea. Idumea is just another name for the territory of Edom. You may notice Edom sounds like Edom. They conquered Idumea, and they told the conquered Edomites, also called Edomians, you better convert to Judaism, or you got to leave. I gave them an ultimatum. Well, the Edomians submitted. They said, all right, fine, we'll become Jews. And they got circumcised, and that's 
the Edomites, the Edomians, they became Jews. Now, one Edomian raised as a Jew was named Herod. And he climbed the political ladder and he became a governor in the Judean kingdom, kingdom that was run by the Jews. But then civil war broke out. Civil war broke out between two people rivaling for the Jewish throne, rivaling for Jewish control. And Herod appealed to Rome for help. Help support one of the factions. Well, Rome decided actually to just make Herod the client king of the whole area. We'll make you king. We'll support you as king. Just serve Rome's interest. And they gave Herod military support, and he put an end to the Jewish civil war. Three years later, Herod had defeated all the warring factions and established himself as king of the Jews. He had, with Rome's support, become the king. But was Herod a Jew? Well, kind of. He wasn't a Jew by blood. He was a Demean. But he confessed himself, along with the rest of the Edomians, to be a devotee of the Jewish religion. He also married the daughter of the previous Jewish king. So he could claim before the Jews, I am one of you. I am a Jew. Now much of Herod's behavior called into question this professed religion. Herod married ten times and had several family members, including one wife and some of his sons, killed. But at least Herod wasn't Roman. That would have been intolerable. As long as Herod ruled the Jewish lands, Judea could claim that it was still independent. Even though the understanding was, Herod, Rome helped you get power, so you need to serve Rome. You need to be a friend of Rome, especially as we deal with Parthia, or Parthia in the east. So Herod and Jerusalem are troubled by these wise men. And Herod decides to do some fact-finding. He gathers together the Jewish religious leaders and asks them, where is this king, this Messiah, where is he supposed to be born? What prophecy do they quote to Herod in response? Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2. That's a, a, a prophecy that frequently comes up, so let's know that reference. Micah 5.2 reveals that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So Herod learns this. And then he meets secretly with the Magi to find out exactly when the star appeared, how old this new king was expected to be. And then notice his specific instructions that he gives to the wise men. Go to Bethlehem, search for the child, and when you find him, let me know. Why? So I too may go and worship him. Well, this would have been the expected response of someone who claimed to be a Jew. If you were a Jew, you were also waiting for the Messiah. You would also bow down before the Messiah, the one who would redeem Israel. Yeah, I'm one of those too, so when you find him, let me know. So I can go visit him. So the wise men follow Herod's orders. They head out to Bethlehem, which is only about a five-mile trip from Jerusalem, and notice what they see. The star which they had previously seen in the east, appears and goes on before them until it stops and stands over the place where Jesus is. That is a very unusual star. And the wise men rejoiced exceedingly when they saw the star. They and their entourage, they find the right house, they come in, and they fall to the ground, and they worship the child Jesus. And they open their treasures, and they present to Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each of these items were quite valuable. Now, you know what gold is. You know why that's valuable. But what about the other two items? What are they? What are they for? Why are they valuable? Frankincense is a fragrant tree resin. It was sometimes an ingredient in perfume, but more often it was a core element in incense. You may notice that the term frankincense has the word incense in it. Those two were directly connected. Incense could be burned to produce a special pleasant aroma in one's home, or often used as part of religious ritual, not just by the Jews, but others. Recall that the temple, God's temple, included an altar of incense. And the Torah even gave special instructions about what kind of incense was to be burned on on that altar, and that special incense, that holy incense, included frankincense as an ingredient. So that's frankincense. What about myrrh? Well, myrrh was another kind of fragrant tree resin, and it was also used as an ingredient in perfume and in fragrant anointing oils. The holy anointing oil of the temple and the tabernacle included myrrh as one of its ingredients. 
Myrrh was also used by the Jews as part of embalming dead bodies. Remember that the Jewish tradition for preparing someone for a grave was to heavily perfume the body with various oils and perfumes. So myrrh would be one of the ones that they used. It wasn't the only one, but it was one of them. So both frankincense and myrrh, they give off these very pleasant fragrances, but they only come from these special trees, so they were valuable items in Jesus' day. They could be used practically, but just having them was, was quite a big deal. Now, how much gold, how much frankincense, and how much myrrh did the wise men give Jesus? Well, the text doesn't say. Often you see pictures like little token boxes of these things. A little bit of gold, a little bit. That might not be the case. Could have been a lot, or it could have been not that much. But they gave these gifts. They gave these gifts to Jesus. And then notice, despite Herod's instruction, the wise men do not return to Herod. And why not? Well, because they were warned in the dream. Notice the text italicizes they are warned in the dream by God. By God is italicized. When you ever see italics in your Bibles, that means that those words are not actually part of the original text. But they've been supplied by the translators so that you can understand. This is helpful here. Because how else... Or who could possibly have given this dream to the wise men except God? Warning them, don't go back to Herod. That's not my intention. Go another way. So this, that is warranted here. God was the one warning these wise men in their dreams not to return. So they go to their country. Notice it's country singular. They go to their country by another way. A way that they're not taken by Jerusalem or past Herod. Then an angel appears to Joseph in a dream warning Joseph to flee with Mary and Jesus and go to Egypt since Herod was going to try to kill the child. And notice, uh, notice the angel tells Joseph how long to stay there. Stay there until I speak to you again. Stay there until I tell you. And then notice Joseph immediately obeys. It says he got up while it was still night. He didn't wait for the morning. He's like, whoa, I'm out of here. Let's go left for Egypt, and the family stayed there until the death of Herod. That's when the angel spoke to Joseph again. Then Matthew says that this action fulfills what God previously spoke through a prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew says, what just happened fulfills this. Now that text that he refers to is, a, is Hosea 11.1. 1. We're going to come back to that later. And notice Herod's response, being tricked by these wise men. He becomes very enraged. He has all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding region that were two years old or under killed. Bethlehem is not that big of a town, but you do have these, the surrounding regions. So we're definitely talking dozens, maybe even more than 100 children slaughtered. All of a sudden, these male children, two years old and under. I'm sure there wasn't really even an explanation given. Matthew notes that this action also is prophetic fulfillment. It has prophetic fulfillment. Specifically from Jeremiah. Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31.15. says this is fulfilled. We'll talk about that later too. Okay. Having made our observations, having become more familiar with the historical context, let's ask some interpretation questions now. By the way, there's an artist's depiction of Herod. Nice beard. All right. How did the wise men know that the star meant that the Messiah was born? How did they know that? A couple possibilities. It's not because astrology is an accurate science. Don't get that idea. It may be that God simply chose to use this false pagan science to fulfill his own purposes. These wise men, they could have been astrologers. Astrologers look at the stars. They saw the star. God says, I'm going to cause these astrologers to come to Jerusalem via their own weird science puts the star in the sky, they come to Jerusalem and look for the king of the Jews. But I don't think it's quite that simple, because even if they knew that a king was born by studying the stars, why come to give this king such gifts and honor? Why make the trek? More likely, these wise men, to some degree, feared Yahweh, and knew something about the coming Messiah from the Hebrew scriptures. Now, how is it that these wise men in the east, perhaps Persians, how is it that they could have known something about the Messiah and the Hebrew Bible? Yes, Steve? Daniel again. 
Daniel, right, back to Daniel. It's not simply Daniel. I mean, certainly Daniel was an important guy and a leader of the wise men, and the other guys, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were also wise men, so they could have had an influence, an ongoing influence on the Persian wise men. But remember, the Jews lived in Persia. Many of the Jews lived in Persia. Many of them came back to Israel, but some of them didn't. So you did have that influence of the Jews and of the Hebrew Scriptures, even in Persia. So these wise men were somehow exposed to the Hebrew Scriptures, and they had some level of fear of Yahweh. They may then have combined that fear of Yahweh with their pagan religion and astrology. And so when they saw this star placed especially in the sky, they said, this must be God's Messiah. They came to Jerusalem to find him so that they might worship him. It's also possible that these wise men were not pagans at all. They just happened to be in Persia and part of that caste. But like Daniel and his friends, they were true God-fearers. And they looked at the sky not due to astrology, but due to a statement that was given by Balaam in Numbers 24, 17. Remember, Balaam was the one who tried to curse Israel, but God turned his curses into a blessing? Well, Balaam, by God's spirit, prophesied. And one of the things that he said in Numbers 24, 17 is this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheph. And we can argue whether that really is a prophecy about the star. But you can certainly see, perhaps these wise men, they could have deduced a conclusion that there's going to be a star connected with the coming of this scepter, the one who has this scepter, this king. They may have concluded that there's going to be a star connected to the coming of this Messiah. So, if these wise men were indeed God-fearers, they therefore, when they saw the special star, they went to Israel to look for God's king, look for God's Messiah. Now, I have to put these out as mere possibilities because the text doesn't say. The text doesn't tell us how much they believed the Lord, why they were there. But they certainly did come, and their coming was significant because it declared something about the child Jesus. That's our next question. What does the visit of the Magi, whatever their motivation, what does their visit reveal about Jesus? Jesus is? He is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. Remember, this is a special emphasis from Matthew in his gospel. All the gospels present Jesus as the Messiah, but as I argued to you before, Matthew presents Jesus as the true king of Israel whose kingdom will still come. It's no accident that Matthew includes this account further supporting that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah king. Even the king that will, because remember Old Testament prophecy, even the king that will rule the nations. Because it's not simply that he'll be the king of the Jews, but that from Jerusalem he will rule all the world. So considering, oh, but this does bring up an interesting idea. Considering the way that Jesus' earthly ministry ends in Matthew, what is ironic about having these Gentile wise men who are far removed from Israel, far removed from Jesus, the king of the Jews, what is ironic about having them coming and worshiping Jesus and acknowledging him as king of the Jews? Who didn't do that? Those who are in the backyard. The Jews. What? Those who are in the backyard. Those who are nearby. Yeah, those who are nearby. Those who are around Bethlehem. Those who are in Jerusalem. They didn't acknowledge him as king of the Jews. May have for a time, but ultimately they rejected him. And yet, you have these people who are far off. You'd be like, how did you end up here? They come and they acknowledge that Jesus is the king, and they respond appropriately to him. They worship him, and they give him gifts. Another quick question here. Why is it significant that Jesus fulfills three Old Testament prophecies in this passage? Why mention that? Yeah, Steve? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Okay, yeah, I mean, we could point to two or three witnesses are to establish things according to the Torah. Certainly we're going to see more of this in Matthew and in the other Gospels, but whenever you see fulfillment of the Old Testament by Jesus, that just supports the claim of who Jesus is. He is the promised one of God. He is the Messiah. Look, it lines up with the Scriptures. Now, what kind of star did the wise men see? <laughs> Many have sought to come up with an explanation or description of what specifically these wise men saw. Was it a special alignment of the planets? 
Was it a shooting star? Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? But really, no natural explanation fits what is described here. Consider that this star appears in the east and then moves. And it moves in such a way that it goes on before these wise men and stops over exactly where the child was. Now, this is a normal star, and it's sitting way up in the sky. How is that going to show you exactly where to go in Bethlehem? I mean, they knew where to go in Bethlehem, because that's the prophecy. But where in Bethlehem was this king? The star had to specifically point it out, somehow. That wouldn't work if it's just some distant star. And a shooting star, I mean, that couldn't travel, but that doesn't stay in one place. It doesn't stop and stand and point out a, a house. So our best conclusion, then, is that this star was a supernatural phenomenon, uniquely designed by God to be recognized and followed by these wise men from the east. Now, why did the wise men's arrival trouble Herod and all of Jerusalem? We alluded to this before, but why would that be troubling to him and Jerusalem? It was the king. So what does this visit of the wise men suggest? There's another king out there. There's another king of the Jews out there, and he's vying for your same position. That would definitely be troubling. I think that's the main issue. We could also say that perhaps Herod and the people in Jerusalem were simply not sure what's going on. This entourage, if they really came from Persia, from Parthia, uh, Rome's enemy, they might have been wondering what exactly Parthia is up to. Is Parthia trying to pick a fight? They're, they're saying there's another king here? Certainly this visit was unexpected. Government was not prepared for this Parthian caravan, if it was indeed Parthian. The simple answer, though, is I think, as you said, Herod, those connected with him, were concerned about the content of the wise men's declaration. There's another king of the Jews that was just born. There's another claimant. Yeah? So I can understand why Herod might be a little upset, but why, why were the people who think they would want a, a king, the Jewish king, to come? That's a good question. We'll, we'll say something real quickly about that. Why would the Jews, why would Jerusalem also be in trouble? We can understand why Herod would be, but why others? It's because, I think, the, not just Herod, but the rulers at the top, the other Jews connected to Herod's political establishment, or even the chief religious leaders, they recognize that a different king than Herod was a threat to the current political and religious establishment. As you usurper out there who could overturn our position, take away what we've worked for. Because remember the words of the, Jew the Jewish leaders in John 11.48. John 11.48, some of the Jewish religious leaders complain, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they saw... Jesus as a threat to what had been accomplished. We have a Jewish kingdom. We're nominally independent. We have positions within the kingdom. There's suddenly another king of the Jews out there. That's going to mess everything up. That's a threat. That's a threat to what they've already established. So there were many people, not just Herod, interested in maintaining the current situation in Israel. Maintaining the current system of rule. God's Messiah was like a monkey wrench in their plans. I think that might be the reason. I think that is the reason. Now, how should we understand Herod's statement, let me know so I can come and worship him? How are we to understand that? That's just straight up deception. We, we see later on in the passage. He has no intention of coming to worship Jesus. He's intending to murder Jesus. Now, what is significant about the gifts that the wise men give to Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why are those significant? Well, let's just... Oh, go ahead. I've heard that they correspond to his, his offices, okay. king, prophet, and priest. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about it in just a second. Do they correspond to Jesus' offices? Certainly at a basic level, what can we say about these gifts? They're precious. They're precious and appropriate for, for whom? For a king. For a king. These are gifts fit for a king. These are valuable gifts fit for a king. But do they have further significance? Many have sought to find further significance in these three gifts. In fact, if we go back to We Three Kings, there's actually an interpretation of the gifts in that song. Gold is a sign of Jesus' kingship. 
Uh, frankincense is a sign of Jesus' deity. After all, frankincense is offered up in religious rituals. And myrrh is a sign of Jesus' sacrificial death because it was used in anointing oils. Such a breakdown is interesting, but it's hard to prove or disprove. We might just as easily say that the gold is a symbol of Jesus' eternality. After all, gold doesn't rust. Frankincense is a sign of his favor with God because that's one of the reasons that frankincense was given. Or myrrh is a sign of his favor with men. After all, it is a fragrant perfume and anointing oil. And Luke says that Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Or we might say that a gold is a sign of his deity, frankincense is a sign of his acceptable sacrifice on man's behalf, and myrrh is a sign of his fragrant gospel to be preached everywhere. I think you're seeing that there's a problem here because we're basically engaging in allegorical interpretation that's not based off of any specific details in the passage's context or consistent symbology in the scripture. So these symbols could mean almost anything. Therefore, I would counsel you, do not try to look too deeply into the meaning of these items. They're simply valuable items fit for an exalted king. We really don't have much basis to say more than that. How striking it is that such great gifts are given to a toddler in a common house in Bethlehem. Yet this was appropriate for who this Jesus child really was. There is a flavor here, surely, of those Old Testament prophecies that promised that tribute from the nations would be given to the one-day coming king of the Jews. But those prophecies were not fulfilled here might say that they are foreshadowed here. They will have their true fulfillment, but we do see a flavor of that tribute from the nation being brought to the king of the Jews. You may be wondering, what did Mary and Joseph do with these gifts? I mean, you have all these valuable items. What are you going to do with them? Paying your trip to Egypt on the cheap, right? Right. So that is one tradition, one explanation for what happens here. Again, the text doesn't tell us. I'm sorry you're hearing that a lot today. We want to know more, but the text doesn't tell us. It could be that these items were used to finance the flight and return from Egypt. It could be, other traditions say, or it could be that these items were to upgrade the family's living situation. Because we saw in Luke, these Joseph and Mary were poor. They had to give the basic sacrifice. They couldn't do the regular one. But later on, we don't see that as much. We don't see the signs of poverty in their family. Did they upgrade their living situation? Was it to finance the flight? But some of these items, and there's a tradition about this, were some of these items actually kept and used after Jesus' death? Was the myrrh given by the wise men actually used as part of the preparing Jesus for burial? It could be, but there's no way to say. The text doesn't tell us. Neither do any of the gospel narratives. These items are not mentioned again. All right, one more question. Herod massacred the children of Bethlehem. And because he did not know that Joseph and Mary had already fled with Jesus, Herod probably thought that he had taken care of the threat to his rule. Yet we see in the text, God acted preemptively. Herod's plan to eliminate God's king actually failed. What principle regarding God's Messiah then do we see here? Trying to get rid of the Messiah didn't work. Since it's his sovereignty that whatever the Lord says will come to pass. Exactly. We see God's sovereignty. Whatever the Lord says will come to pass. And what has he already declared? I will establish my king. I will establish my king. That's all through the Old Testament. You remember not too long ago, we looked at that specifically in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they devise a vain thing? They say, we're going to throw off the shackles of God's king. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. And he says, as for me, I have established my king on my holy mountain. You can't oppose God's Messiah. You can't destroy God's Messiah. You can't prevent him from becoming king. God is sovereign. God is powerful. He will give the kingdom to his anointed, who is his son. Even in Jesus' crucifixion, both the Jews and the Romans thought that they had successfully gotten rid of God's challenge to their rule. They didn't want God's king, so they got rid of the Messiah. But even there, their murder plan failed. Because what happened? Jesus rose from the grave. And he later ascended to the right hand of God, where he waits until what? 
Yeah, until his enemies are subdued and the Father gives him the kingdom. You can't mess up God's plan. He will establish his king. You can't stop his king from coming. You can't stop his king from establishing his kingdom. This is a, this is a theme uh, throughout the scriptures, and we see it again here, even in the beginning of Matthew. Now, before we talk about application, we do need to just briefly broach the interpretation issue that appears with the prophecies here in our text. What is going on with the citations of Hosea 11.1 and Jeremiah 31.15? If we had time, I'd look at each one of these passages in their original context with you. But, because we need to move along, I'm just going to summarize their context instead. Please go back and look at the original passages later, Hosea 11.1, verses 1 to 5, or Jeremiah 11.15 to 20. And you'll see, some, you'll see what I'm talking about. Matthew seems to cite Hosea 11.1 as a fulfilled prophecy regarding Jesus' flight and return from Egypt. This is what Hosea pre-told pre Jesus was going to do this, and Messiah was going to do this. But if we go back to that verse, the context appears to be describing, to merely be describing, describing Israel's history. Hosea 11.1-5 describes Israel as being like a lad a son that God brought out from Egypt, but who kept straying from God and ultimately refused to listen to God's word. Therefore, in Isaiah 11.5, God promises to judge this son by bringing Assyria against him. The Jeremiah citation is similar. Matthew seems to cite Jeremiah 31.15 as if it were a fulfilled prophecy regarding the massacre of the Bethlehem infants. But if we go back and look at Jeremiah 31.16-20, or 15-20, we see that the original context of that statement is God describing the weeping of the mothers as their children are taken away from them and brought into exile. Actually, in the verses that follow, God tells the mothers to stop weeping because God will return those children from exile and restore repentant Israel. So what is going on here in Matthew? Why does Matthew seem to be quoting scripture out of context? and saying it's fulfilled. Well, to fully, or, no, let me say this. This non-contextual use of the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is a highly contested issue among pastors and theologians today. Because what lies at the root of this question are fundamental assumptions about how do you interpret the Bible. Different approaches to hermeneutics have a strong interest in answering this question one way or the other. How do the apostles sometimes use the Old Testament out of context? To fully flesh out this issue would take way more time than we have right now. So I'm only just going to briefly and basically outline the different approaches to answering this question. What is Matthew doing? What are the apostles doing when they do something like this in the New Testament? It doesn't appear all the time. In fact, you can see even earlier in this passage, in Matthew 2, he quotes Micah 5.2, which is not out of context at all. That's exactly what Micah prophesied, and it was fulfilled. And Matthew points out its fulfillment through the Jewish leaders. But sometimes you have these non-contextual uses. So what is going on? What are the different ways we can answer this question? We might come back to this and flesh this out maybe in a later lesson, maybe in one of our review days. But one approach is to say that Matthew simply made a mistake. The apostles made a mistake. They were so zealous to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament that they cited passages that weren't really fulfilled. Okay, this is a skeptical point of view, and we can just put it aside, because no, that's not valid. Approach number two. Good protest about the original context. Some say the New Testament authors actually were citing the verses in context. We just misunderstood that original context. There's some good men who make this defense. And sometimes I, I believe this is the case. People say, oh, that's obviously out of context. When you go back and look at the Old Testament, you say, well, actually, maybe it's not. But there are some cases where if you still try to maintain that defense, I don't know how you do that. Because it just seems so obviously different. I think we see some examples of that here in Matthew 2. A third approach is to... Did I just lose the mic? No, I'm still okay. Allow for hidden meanings. That is to say, the New Testament author is bringing out another meaning hidden in the original Old Testament text. Either the prophet, the prophet that God originally inspired, inspired always intended two meanings, at least two meanings, or 
the prophet intended one meaning, and God had an extra meaning that was contained in the message of which the prophet was unaware. Some good men also take this position. And it has various forms. The Christocentric hermeneutic, probably the most prominent example of this kind of approach. The fundamental problem with this position is that it violates two basic principles of hermeneutics. That is, that the meaning of the text is the same as the author's intended meaning, that is what the author intended to convey, and that the author's intended meaning is communicated through the use of shared symbols. That is, through words and syntax that are recognizable to the intended audience. It doesn't author no good to intend meaning that he doesn't actually communicate. To say it another way, if I can't trust what the author actually said to give me his full meaning, then how can I ever judge with certainty the author's full meaning? I no longer have an objective standard if it doesn't come from the words and syntax. Now some suggest, well, we use the New Testament. We use the work of Christ as our guide to find these hidden meanings. But trying to use the New Testament or even the work of Christ introduces, only introduces one to an allegorical, and I would say eisegetical, free-for-all. There's no real way to objectively judge where or which or how New Testament or Christological concepts are hidden in various Old Testament texts. Now someone will say, well, we're not able to discern these hidden messages in the Old Testament, but the inspired New Testament authors were. The apostles, they're the ones who are able to recognize it, so we can just trust when they find the hidden meaning. Okay, that is a good concession. That is a helpful explanation. And if you, if you take that view and you limit yourself to that, then that, there is some commendability in that. But even if you limit the finding of a deeper meaning to the inspired apostles, you still have introduced a disconnect between the author's intent and the meaning of the text. Now, why should all of God's hidden meanings be limited to the small set of verses that are cited by the apostles non-contextually? Surely there are more that God meant us to find. That's why I don't take approach three. I favor approach number four, which is to broaden the meaning of the word fulfilled. That is to say that the New Testament author is doing something different in these situations than simply reporting the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, Old Testament prophecy in its context. He's not changing or adding to the original meaning of the Old Testament text, but he is citing an example, drawing an analogy, identifying a type, or something else. Why I favor this approach is because it allows one to be hermeneutically consistent. You can be consistent in the way that you approach finding the meaning of a text while still explaining the New Testament author's non-contextual use of certain passages. So how would such an approach explain Matthew 2, 15, and 18? Well, I would like to take more time to really prepare a response to that, but tentatively, I'll just offer, that Matthew cites these verses not, or Matthew cites these verses to draw comparisons between Israel and Jesus. Amen. It might go something like this. In Matthew 2.15, Matthew cites Hosea 11.1 not to claim that Hosea originally foretold Messiah's journey to Egypt, but to highlight how appropriate it is for the king of Israel to journey to and from Egypt just like his people. There's a strong um, correlation in the Old Testament between king and people. Whatever's true for the king is usually true for the people and vice versa. So perhaps Matthew is citing this passage in Hosea 11.1 to show that Jesus fulfills that kind of connection. He's just like his people. Or in Jeremiah 31.15, in his citation of Jeremiah 31.15, it's not that Matthew claims that Jeremiah foretold the massacre of Bethlehem's male toddlers, but to highlight that just as Judah's mothers, just as Judah's mothers suffered because of an evil ruler, and they didn't know about God's comfort that was, about, that was going to come to them. So Judah's mothers under Herod suffer, but do not realize that the comfort of King Jesus is going to be available imminently. Now there's much more that we could say in these verses, and I'm sure there, there are many other views, but I just wanted to outline for you the basic approaches on what I think is the best one. If I may say, I think using typology in a, in a careful way is not the same as allegorizing scripture. That's right. And it's not eisegesis. Right. And I think we shouldn't be afraid of thinking that way just because we're so afraid of allegorical interpretations. Right. Yeah, that is useful, Bill. It's useful to point out that identifying a type 
or investigating typology is not quite the same as allegorization because one changes the meaning or adds to the meaning or another just adds to the significance of something. That's why in this last view, one of the things that the author might be doing is identifying a type. In fact, if you look at the MacArthur study notes on these two verses, I think they take that view, that these are actually types. Uh, these two verses are identifying types in the Old Testament of what Jesus would do. I, I would probably say more comparison, but I, I understand where, where they're coming from. So, Certainly, this is a unique thing. It doesn't appear always in the New Testament, but it is a, it is a big question. What, what are the New Testament authors really doing? But I submit to you, they're not finding a deeper meaning, not finding a hidden meaning, because that, that leads to hermeneutical issues. All right. About two minutes, so I'm just going to close. If you have other questions or comments, you can see me afterwards. But what is the point of all this? What's the main application we should take away from today's passage? Well, in some ways, it's kind of straightforward. It's about the kingship of Jesus. How do you respond to King Jesus? Jesus is the king whose earthly kingdom is coming, not just for the Jews, but the whole world. His kingship cannot be stopped. But man still tries to resist submitting to or recognizing the installation of God's king. What about you? Do you acknowledge Jesus as king? Not, over, not only over the whole world, but over you? over every aspect of your life? Have you happily given everything over to Jesus? Do you worship and serve him as is appropriate for who he really is? The wise men, they gave the gifts that are appropriate. They bowed down appropriately. Do you react appropriately? Do you give Jesus what he deserves as Lord and God? Or do you foolishly rebel against Jesus, fighting to maintain your own rule, as Herod did? as the Jewish leaders did. Remember, there's no neutral ground with Jesus. He said, he, he who is not with me scatters. Let us then acknowledge Jesus as the rightful king, because when we do so, instead of being destroyed when he comes, we will find a gracious place, an undeserved place in his kingdom. All right, let's close in prayer. Our God, we thank you for this word. It is a great word. We love that you revealed not only that you sent your son as the king, as the redeemer, into the world, but that you revealed it to us so we can know about it and we can believe. But we know, God, that we must respond appropriately. Jesus, you are the king. We love you. You deserve all worship. You deserve us figuratively to bow our lives down to you, every aspect of our lives. But, Lord, you know that the deceitfulness of sin is great. So deliver us from sin. Deliver us from the lies. And Lord Jesus, by your spirit, cause us to follow after you, to serve you, to love you as the king, just as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.